morning. How is everybody? Good, good. It's good to see all your smiling faces this morning. Can everybody hear me in the back? Okay. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, please open them to the book of Jude, verse 14. Uh, Jude is all the way at the back of your Bible and then back up one and you'll be there. Our text for this morning will be verse 14 to verse 23. And this is what God's Word says. And about these also Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there shall be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause divisions among you worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy mixed with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh." In these recent weeks, Pastor Brooks has been speaking to us about counterfeit Christian groups. Those groups that would claim to be Christians, but when you unpack the claims that they make and the doctrine that they follow against Scripture, it leaves something to be lacking. Like he would say, when you unpack your Jesus suitcase and they unpack their Jesus suitcase, it leaves something to be, to be desired. There's a, a, a concrete difference between the two. Today I want to talk about the other side of the nickel. I want to talk about not just those dangers that come at us from outside, but the dangers that the Bible speaks to that will arise from our own ranks, that will come at the church and what the church is supposed to do from the inside. And that's what Jude speaks of in these verses that we just read. False teachers, people that will look great on the surface, but it's like a particle board countertop you've ever seen a particle board countertop, if you lean on it, it buckles. It's not sturdy like oak is. But when you lean on an oak table or you hit an oak table in the middle of the night when you're going to the fridge for a glass of milk, you're going to break your toe, but you're not going to break that oak table. And that's what these false teachers are like. Particle board. They look pretty from far off. But when you give them close scrutiny, they leave something to be desired. And so what I want to talk to you today about is these false teachers. I want to talk to you about their standard operating procedure. I want to talk to you about the impact of their behavior in the body of Christ. And I want to talk to you most importantly about our reaction to them. What should our response be to the false teachers that Scripture teaches us are already here? And in these verses, Jude starts off his entire book, and the premise of his entire book is verses 3 and 4. I wanted to write to you 
concerning our common salvation. But I found it necessary to write to you that you contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. And then he goes on to say in verse 4, for certain ones have crept in unnoticed. And he goes on in verse 4 to call them ungodly men who deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when he speaks in verse 14 and 15, talking about the prophecy of Enoch, what he is doing is quoting a book that's outside of Scripture. He's quoting the book of Enoch, chapter 1, verse 9. But the reason that he's doing that is because he's quoting something that for these first century recipients of his letter, they would have understood exactly what he's talking about. He's quoting a contemporary source in much the same way that the Apostle Paul quotes the Stoic and Epicurean poets in Acts 17, verse 28. But he's doing that to add strength to his argument. Jude's argument begins in verse 5. And it's one of the major threads that go all the way through the book. And to summarize for you, he quotes Old Testament examples, such as the wilderness generation of Israel, verse 5, Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7. But his point is, just like God judged the wilderness generation of Israel, and just like God judged the wickedness and the sinful conduct of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, God will judge these wicked false teachers, and their end is certain. They are on a collision course with the risen king of the universe. They're on a collision course with judgment day. They're on a collision course with somebody that will not abide wickedness in any form, and he is going to slice them and dice them and send them packing. The end of these false teachers is absolutely certain, just as certain as you're sitting in green chairs this morning or I'm standing in front of you. That's where he starts. Verses 14 and 15, his argument, quoting this extra-biblical source, is basically that these false teachers are toast when Jesus comes. If that's where he starts in our text this morning, things can only go down from there. In the next three verses, 16, 17, and 18, he speaks to us about their standard operating procedure. In other words, when these false teachers do what they do in the midst of the church of the living God in today's world, what will they be like? And he starts off giving us very specific things in verse 16. Number one, he says, they're grumblers, finding fault. Now this word is very, very special in the New Testament. It basically means that they complain no matter what. No matter what's being done, they have something to say about it. And the way to understand it is to look back to the Old Testament. Now, you all know the story from the book of Exodus that God delivered the Israelites out of 400 years of Egyptian slavery, and he did so by raising up Moses to lead them. And they came out, and Pharaoh's army pursued them to the Red Sea. God parted the Red Sea, and they crossed over on dry ground, and the armies of the Egyptians were slaughtered when the water came back on them because they tried to follow. And right after that, we pick up with Exodus chapter 16 and verse 3, and what we find is not a happy picture. It's not a praiseful picture. What we find is that the Israelites are complaining against Moses. 
And they say, oh, that the Lord would have slayed us in Egypt because at least in Egypt we had pots of meat and bread to the full. But you've brought us out here to kill us and to kill our children in the wilderness with hunger. And so Moses goes before the Lord. The Lord provides manna for them and quail for them. Millions and millions of people he feeds them every day, morning and night. But you would think, after all that happened in Exodus 16, that their attitude would have changed. But no, if you look, Exodus chapter 17 and verse 3, they're complaining because they don't have water to drink. Why have you brought us out here? So that we can die of thirst in the wilderness ourselves and our children. And they complained and they grumbled against Moses. That Old Testament concept, Exodus 16.3 and 17.3, is exactly the word when they translated the Old Testament into New Testament Greek for those Jews of the diaspora, the ones that weren't familiar with Hebrew. This is the concept that they used, this word. In other words, no matter what you do, they're going to grumble. They're going to complain. They're going to find fault. But the list keeps going from there. It says that they follow... After their own lust. These guys not only complain about everything, they're driven by their own lustful desires. This is directly contrary to how Scripture tells us we ought to live. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3. For this is God's will for you, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. And these guys are following their own agenda. They care nothing about living pure. They care nothing about having relationships be pure within God's house, within the family of God. They care nothing about that. They are controlled by their lust. And then it keeps going. And it says, they speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining advantage. The first thing that they do is when they open their mouth, they're proud. Look at me. Look at my accomplishments. Look at what I've done. Proverbs calls this behavior right to the mat. It says, pride goeth before a fall, and a haughty spirit goeth before destruction. In other words, in God's family, we have no room, no time for anybody to say, look at me. We should all be saying, look at him. Look at who he is. Look at what he's done. Look at how he works. Check him out. We should be good Teflon frying pans. When anybody gives us credit, the credit just rolls straight off of us and right to him where it belongs. Not only do they speak arrogantly, they flatter people to gain advantage. In other words, they see the haves and the have-nots within the body of Christ. They see people that they can curry favor with. They see people that they can suck up to. They see people that they can tell what they want to hear so they can get what they really want underneath the surface, which is to be noticed. This is directly counter to what God's Word teaches us. James chapter 2, verse 1 says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ 
the Lord of glory with partiality. Don't do that. In other words, out there in the world, everybody's after, look at me. They're after what they can get and what they can keep and how people react to the things that they have. The influence, the position, the power, the material things. But in God's house, it's supposed to be altogether different. The ground is level at the cross. If Jesus hadn't went there, and He hadn't done what He did for us, all of us would be done. doesn't matter whether you drove here in a Camry or a Lexus. If Jesus didn't go to the cross for you, if He didn't die for you, if He didn't purchase you with His own blood, you would be done. And when we speak with partiality and we act with partiality one toward the other, what we do is we cheapen that. And we muddy the picture that the world outside is looking at us for of the Jesus that we say that we live for. And I'm here to tell you this morning, what we say better match up with how we live. It better match up with how we treat each other. Because they're watching the microscope, as they say, is jacked all the way up to 5X. They're checking you out. You might or might not talk to them, but they are watching you. And they want to see if it lines up. And these guys, they don't care one iota about what God's Word says about how they ought to act. Or what they ought to do. They're out for themselves. So that begs the question, verse 19. What is the reaction of a group of people, or what is the impact of a group of people who act like that, contrary to God's Word? What kind of impact are they having in the body of Christ? Verse 19 says, For these are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. In other words, these people who are out for themselves, these false teachers, what they're doing is dividing the body of Christ. They're threatening our unity. Now the Apostle Paul would tell the Philippians in chapter 2, verse 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, be of the same mind in one accord. In other words, a priority for us as God's people is that we do not let people threaten our unity. It doesn't mean that we all think the same, but it means that we all think biblically. And that is our standard. And anything that comes to threaten our unity one with another, whether it's the body as a whole or whether it's individual families, we need to recognize that the enemy is not playing with us. He doesn't want to invite you to a Sunday school picnic. He wants to kill you and he wants to destroy this place. And everything that you stand for. Because who do you stand for as a Christian in this world that's backwards and they wouldn't know light if it bit them on the arm? Who do you stand for? There's only one person that you stand for. Who is it? Jesus. And remember, Satan above everything else wants to discredit Jesus. Any which way he can. And what makes him such a formidable enemy is he already knows he's done. And what do you do with an enemy who has nothing to lose? You watch him very carefully. Because he'll stop at nothing. To do as much damage as he can until he goes to hell where he belongs. Right? 
If he's dangerous, he's dangerous. Make no mistake about it. The world doesn't think he exists, but he exists. He's real, and he wants to hurt us. He wants to hurt us. But anything that you see in verse 19, anything that you see that threatens our unity, you should be very, very cautious and react against that. And what does he say? That these men are worldly-minded. That they're devoid of the Spirit. Well, Galatians chapter 5 tells us that all those who are in Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, we should walk by the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24 and 25. In other words, these guys are not being controlled by the Holy Spirit of the living God. But we should be. They're devoid of the Spirit, but we should constantly be submitting ourselves to the Spirit's leadership. We should listen to what He tells us to do. He's not a force, and He's not an it. He's a Him. And He's just as much the living God as Jesus or the Father is. We should seriously be listening to what He prompts us to do. And we should obey, quick, fast, and in a hurry. And you might say, well, Candace, I'm tracking with you. I understand their standard operating procedure. I understand that they grumble. I understand that they're trying to gain advantage. I understand that they're proud. I understand that they're just talking words to get people to agree with them. And I also understand that they want to hurt our unity. So how do we apply this? Application, as far as these false teachers go, we need to realize that everything that they're about is contrary to what God's Word teaches us about how we should live. Everything. Not just one thing and the rest lines up, but every single characteristic is opposite of what God's Word teaches. Their conduct is carnal, their conduct is selfish, and their conduct is divisive. Carnal, divisive, selfish. And it's opposite of how we should live. And you might be saying, well, Candace, I'm tracking with you, I understand that. But what is our response as authentic followers of Jesus? In other words, now that I know this is going on, and now that I know what to look for as, as far as how they're going to be and what they're going to do, what is my response? Verse 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Our reaction to these false teachers should be twofold. First of all, we're to concern ourselves with edification. He talks about building ourselves up in our most holy faith. Now that word that he translates, building yourselves up, is very special. It's only used here in the New Testament, but it has two nuances that I want to talk about. The first has to do with building yourself up personally. In other words, I want to embrace those things into my life as an individual that will strengthen my walk with God. What are those things? Prayer is central. God's Word is central. I want to serve. I want to have fellowship with other believers. These things are things that Scripture teaches me should be the cornerstones of my life as an individual. But also, I need to concern myself with edification on a corporate level. What do I mean? 
Well, the New Testament speaks of edification happening one way. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 16 will summarize it for you. And basically what Ephesians 4 says is that the Holy Spirit of the living God gives gifts to every person. And he's to employ these gifts in the Lord's service for the building up of the body, for the edification of the church, for God's glory and honor, and so that the church can be strong. That's what we're to concern ourselves with. Not only that we have personal habits that would help us to personally be edified in our Christian walk, but that corporately we use our gifts to build up the body. And this is very important because a lot of people in today's world, they have a skewed view of what church is for. A lot of people think that church is a buffet. You come to church, cruise to the buffet, you get what you want, the things that make you uncomfortable, you leave alone. You sit, you hear, you leave. The Bible does speak of the church being as a place where we can come and be fed, be encouraged. And we're blessed to sit under men who set the table full for us every week from God's Word. And more than that, they believe what they say. And they live what they say. It makes us very blessed people. Not every church in this town can say that. But... The Bible also speaks of the church not just being a place where you come and get fed, be encouraged, be built up in your your relationship with God, but the Bible also speaks of the church as a, a place where gifts are employed, where work is done, where you serve. In other words, the church is a cotton field. Well, what do I mean by that? I mean that in any agricultural field, you have rocks that need to be moved, stumps that need to be blown out, dirt that needs to be turned over, seeds that need to be planted, a harvest that needs to be prayed for. If you look at a field, you should see work. You should see blistered hands, an aching back, hurting feet, work. And that's what a church is. Yes, it's a buffet, but it's also a field. And if we're properly going to have the view that Scripture tells us that we ought to have, of his house. Yeah, it's a place that you come and take from. But it's also a place that you give the best of yourself to. All of us. If all of us have gifts, then the implication is the body needs every single gift. Every single person to be involved. Every single person to give the best of themselves in the Lord's service right here. And why is that important? Because it makes us strong. It helps us keep our focus on Him where it needs to be so that when people who aren't quite right come in our midst and start saying things that do not line up with Scripture, not just Pastor Brooks and Eric and Jason and Jeremy and Nathan's flags go up, but every single one of our flags go up here in our heart. And we say, "Uh uh-uh, that ain't what my Bible teaches. And you might be saying, okay, So I'm supposed to be concerned with edification. That's only part of it. These verses tell us that we should pray in the Holy Spirit. In other words, that prayer should be a central focus for us. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18 tells tells us that we're to devote ourselves to prayer and petition for all the saints, that we're to be concerned with that, that that's to be our focus, and that we're to persevere in that. Well, what's the implication? Things are going to happen trying to get you not to depend on God in prayer. 
they're going to happen to get you away from what's the most powerful thing you can do. And the most powerful thing you can do is pray and depend on God as an individual and as a group. But then he says, not only are we to pray in the Holy Spirit, but we're to keep ourselves in the love of God. What does that mean? Well, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3 tells us, and this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. What's Jude saying? Jude's saying obedience should be a priority for you. You shouldn't just talk it with your mouth, you should live it with your life. What God tells you to do personally and what God tells you to do as a group, you do, and you're serious about that. You obey God. We should be people that obey God. Not the second time he asked, but the first time he asked. And he ought not have to raise his voice to get our attention. All he should have to do is mention, and bam, we're jumping like a frog on a hot plate. Because we're in tune to his voice. Whether it makes sense to us or not is not our affair. He's commanded us to do it, and we obey. Why? Because if we obey then we're right where we need to be in relationship with Him. But then he says that we should anxiously await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. What's he alluding to? He's saying to us that we ought to be looking for Jesus to come. That we ought to be waiting on it. Scripture teaches us not only are we to be expecting it, but we're to be prepared for it. Luke chapter 12 and verse 35 and following says, Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master, so that when he comes back from the wedding and knocks on the door, you may open to him immediately. Assuredly, I say to you, blessed are those servants whom when the master returns, he finds them watching. Don't just look at the coming of Jesus as something abstract. Something that, oh yeah, it's going to happen eventually. We should be looking. Because it could happen anytime. But the Bible teaches us that we need to be prepared. Our bags should already be packed, spiritually speaking. We should have the boarding pass and the ticket next to the luggage in the hall. And when it's time to go, we can go. We don't have to get ready, because if you wait to get ready, you're not ready. Scripture teaches us that you have to prepare ahead of time. It's like a hurricane. You don't wait until trees snap to go to Walmart. (laughs) You don't do that. You wouldn't do that with a hurricane, and you better not do it with your eternity. You better know that you know that you know that you're right with the living God, and you better know that you know that you know that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing while you're here, because you're only here for a minute. And then you're home. And you're going to have to answer for everything you do here. So be careful how you live. Why did he put awaiting that, anxiously awaiting that? Because that's our hope. That Jesus didn't just go back to heaven the first time and leave us to fend for ourselves. No, my Bible tells me that he's going to get up off his throne in heaven and come himself to get his people. In person. And we're not going to have to wonder what what he looks like because we're going to see him for ourselves. In the flesh, live and uncut and in front of you. The Jesus who went to the cross is going to be in front of you. That's good news. That's good news.
Pastor Brooks has been saying in recent weeks that we should engage with the dark when we find it. So far in our discussion of these verses this morning, it, it looks like we're turning a blind eye to the people that are impacted by these false teachers, but we're not. This is only part of the puzzle. We should be concerned with these things, edification, prayer, anxiously awaiting his coming, obeying him as a priority. We should be, we should be focusing on these things because it's important so that when the false teachers come, we can respond to them in the right way. Well, how should we respond to people who've been impacted by these false teachers? Because they're out there. Verse 22 and 23 tells us, the first group of people that are going to be impacted by these false teachers, it says, on some have mercy who are doubting. You need to understand that when these false teachers come in our midst and they do things that are contrary to what Scripture says, they're going to get some people shook. There are going to be some people who don't quite understand which way to go. And what is our response to be to those people? We have mercy on those people. We have compassion on those people. We come alongside those people and we be available and we love them and we point them to the truth of God's Word. We don't do so in a judgmental way. Because you can't have mercy on somebody and be judgmental. You're either having mercy or you're judgmental. It's not either or. That's not what Scripture says do. None of us can sit in judgment on anybody. There's only one judge, and we're not it. Jesus is the judge. So what should our focus be? To have compassion on people. To point them to the truth. To do so with our words, but not stop at our words. To love them in action. To come alongside and to answer their questions. And engage with the misunderstandings that they have. And try to correct it. Not just Pastor Brooks, not just the pastoral staff, not just me, but all of us have to be involved in that. And number two, there aren't just people who doubt. Continue in verse 23. It says, save others, snatching them out of the fire. Well, there are people who haven't just doubted when it comes to false teaching. There are people who've taken it and run with it. And they're going in an opposite direction. And the sense of the Greek here is that you grab them and pull them back from impending danger. It would be like somebody getting ready to step off a curb and they have their iPod in and the earbuds in and the volume jacked up and they go to step off the curb and they don't see the car that's coming. So you reach out and you grab them and you pull them back to keep them from getting hit by the car because if they get hit by the car, they're going to die. That's the sense of the language here. We come along we come along right next to them and we love them enough to have the hard conversations we love them enough to say hey i'm concerned about the things that i see in your life i'm concerned about some of the things that i know that you hold to theologically and i'm not here to sit in judgment on you but what i am here to do is give you a few things to think about have you ever considered what god god's word says about this you pray beforehand you pray during and you pray after Love and mercy is your overarching rule how you deal with people, even though theologically you might be polar uh, opposite to themselves, even though you might strongly oppose everything that they now believe. You have to love them enough to stand in their face and say, hey, I love you and I'm worried about you. Can we talk? I don't know about y'all, but I hate confrontation. I'd rather do anything than get in confrontation with somebody. But there comes a time when confrontation and love is necessary. And that's what we're talking about here. 
You say, hey, hang on just a second. Have you ever thought about this? And you just go right at it. Don't waste time. Because they're going as fast as they can go in the wrong direction. And last, the end of verse 23. It says, and have mercy on some with fear, hating even the garment that's polluted by the flesh. They're not only those people who are confused about which way to go. They're not only those people who have taken false teaching and moving in the wrong direction. There are people who have internalized false teaching to the point where they advocate it. And what's he saying? Number one, the sense of the language in verse 23 is be careful. Watch yourself. Be very careful when you interact with the dark. In other words, know what you believe and know why you believe it and be able to articulate that. Not just Eric, not just Pastor Brooks, not just Jason or Nathan or Jeremy or myself, but all of us need to know what we believe as far as Scripture goes and why we believe it. And know it well enough to be able to articulate it to somebody else who might have a different position. But he's saying to us, we need to be so careful when we interact with those people who have internalized the false teaching that we be real careful, like we would be if our friends had just gone to the gym. They spent two hours on the stair stuffer. They spent an hour with the medicine ball. They spent an hour on the elliptical, and their clothes smell like they have. That's what he's saying. If they drop their gym clothes on the ground, don't we have to be careful how we handle those clothes so that we don't have to go and take a shower? That's what he's saying. These guys have internalized false teaching to such a degree that when we come at them with the truth, when we engage the dark, number one, we've got to be real careful. And number two, we need to realize that if we're not careful, we'll get sucked in. And it won't just be me trying to save you. It'll be both of us going in the wrong direction. And it can happen like that. We need to be very, very careful. How do we apply this last section? First thing we can realize is that eternity is real. And we're not just talking about theoretical people. We're talking about people that we know. People that we've served God with. People that we've prayed with. People that we have been on the mission field with. People that we know that we know that we know in an intimate way. These are the people who are going to be impacted in our midst by false teaching. And when we interact with those people, our love for them ought to come through, not judgment. We should stand for truth, but we should do so in a loving fashion because if we give them an excuse we won't get a second opportunity. It's all about the follow-up visit. How many follow-up visits can I get? Can I love you in such a way that you don't agree with me, but you want to talk to me? That's what we're talking about. And second, we need to realize that not only are there real people involved, it's a real eternity involved. Eternity is very real. Eternity is coming. Eternity is closer today than it was last Sunday. It's not just something we say. It's not just Christianese that we throw out there in polite conversation. It's the truth. Jesus is coming soon. 
So that means Satan will be working overtime because the clock is ticking. But be encouraged. Jude ends his book and he starts his book with the focus on the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, all these things are going on. Yes, they're false teachers in the midst of the church. Yes, they're working overtime. Yes, they'll deceive some. Yes, there's all kind of things going on in Jesus' name that have nothing to do with Jesus in our world today. But be encouraged. The God that we serve, number one, is firmly in control. Number two, he has our best interest at heart. And number three, we can trust him with everything that we are because he's proven by his actions beforehand in the cross that we can trust him. And we can leave it all in the field. When we get to glory, we should have to have people carry us to see Jesus because we don't even have the strength to walk to him. We got no energy. We got nothing left because we left it all on the field, spiritually speaking. And that takes all of us, not just 20% of us or 30% of us, but 100% of us. And isn't Jesus worth it? If he's not worth it, who is? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for today. I thank you so much for an opportunity to come, for an opportunity to worship together as a group, to to pray and to sing and to be in your word. I thank you so much for, for the opportunity that we have that many of our brothers and sisters in the world don't enjoy. Thank you so much for that. We pray that you would have your way in, in our midst this morning, in the remainder of the service, and everything that happens. And we pray that we would take your word with us when we leave and we would implement it. And we love you so much and we thank you that you haven't left us to our own devices to figure out how to follow you. You've given us a blueprint. You've given us a trustworthy blueprint as to how to live. And we thank you for your word this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.